A warning. This episode features discussion of graphic violence against children and animals. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Okay, so true crime fans probably know that in the American judicial system, the attorney for the prosecution almost always gets the final word in court since they're the ones who have the burden of proof. But in France, they do things a little differently. It's actually the accused who gets the last word. And in 1996, one French killer uses his time to address his family, saying, You are here in my heart. If anyone can forgive me, it's you. I ask forgiveness of those who can forgive me. I ask forgiveness as well of those who can never forgive. This is the story of Jean-Claude Roman, a man whose crimes were so heinous, the very idea of forgiveness is almost nauseating to think about. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm taking you around the world to look at 15 culture-defining crimes from 15 different countries. Today, we're stopping by France to wade into the delusionally twisted waters of Jean-Claude Roman. The reason his story is so chilling is because it feels universal, like it could happen to anyone anywhere, at any time. So if you're coming to this episode with trust issues, fair warning. All of that is coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The Roman family rings in the year 1993 in eastern France, home to some of the rarest wines in the world. To the east, the snow-capped Jura Mountains with the Swiss border about a stone's throw away. To the west, the city of Lyon. Now, the Roman's home is in a small town nearby. But on Tuesday, January 5th, Jean-Claude Roman and his wife Florence are running errands in another nearby town. It's basically like a little border town that they used to live in. 
Florence thinks Jean-Claude needs a new suit, but he indulges a different impulse. A new 3,200-franc parka, which, adjusted for inflation, would probably run you more than 1,000 U.S. dollars today. Luckily, Jean-Claude is a big-wig medical researcher at the World Health Organization in Geneva, so they can afford it. After they're done, they pick up their two children, Antoine and Caroline, and their goddaughter, Sophie, from school. Sophie's sleeping over at their house because everyone has the day off from school tomorrow. On their way home, Florence drops Jean-Claude off at a local pharmacy to pick up some drugs for his most recent research on cell cultures. You know, casual stuff. A few barbiturates, some phenobarbital solution. At bedtime, Jean-Claude reads Antoine, Caroline, and Sophie a story and then tucks them in. The next day, Florence invites some friends over for tea in the evening. It's not a standout event by any means, but at one point, just kind of out of the blue, Florence pulls down a picture of her husband when he's just six years old, and she says, Look at those eyes. There can't be anything bad behind those eyes. On Thursdays, Jean-Claude lectures on medicine at some university in Dijon. On his way home, he always visits his parents' house in Clairvaux. This week's a short stay. He delivers some cases of mineral water, and that's pretty much it. But he's made a habit of watching his parents' house disappear in the rear view as he leaves. He wants to savor these ordinary visits. I mean, at their age, any day could be their last. On Friday, Jean-Claude drops Caroline and Antoine off at school. He does this often enough that the other moms use him as an example to their husbands. At home, they'll say things like, I bet Jean-Claude does the dishes for his wife. After school, he picks up the kids as well and takes them to buy a birthday present for a classmate. They settle on a box of Legos, which they pair with some hand-drawn artwork once they get home. Later, after the kids are asleep, Florence receives a phone call from her mother. It's a somber conversation. Her mother's been sad and lonely recently. She's still carrying grief from the unexpected loss of her husband four years earlier. And she never fully recovered from her children growing up and moving out, their visits and calls becoming increasingly rare. Her mother's sorrow seems to pass through the receiver and grab hold of Florence, like an infection. Jean-Claude watches his wife crumble onto the couch and burst into tears. When she hangs up the phone, he sits down next to her and puts an arm around her. And they sit there, a snapshot of their real life, not the shiny veneer others see. Two humans, perfectly in love. And the next thing Jean-Claude knows, he's in the bedroom, standing over his wife's dead body, holding a rolling pin that's dripping in blood. Later in court, Jean-Claude will tell a judge, I am unable to say what happened between the time when I was consoling Florence on the sofa and the moment I woke up holding the rolling pin. But when he does wake up, he doesn't call the police. As far as I know, he doesn't even cry. He goes to the bathroom, washes the blood off the rolling pin, and puts it away somewhere it looks like it belongs. The phone rings the following morning. It's a friend from church wanting to know if Florence can assist in that afternoon's mass. Jean-Claude takes the call in the bathroom and tells her, probably not, they're going to visit his parents for the weekend. But the call wakes Antoine and Caroline. 
They bound into the bathroom with their father before he ushers them downstairs, using their sleeping mother as an excuse. After pouring three bowls of Cocoa Puffs, Jean-Claude sits down with his children and watches the three little pigs on VHS. In between spoonfuls of sugar, he reminds them how much he loves them. When Caroline notices her father's skin feels cold to the touch, she offers to fetch him a bathrobe. But Jean-Claude twists her logic and uses it against her. Maybe he's not cold, he says. Maybe she's boiling hot. They should probably check her temperature upstairs, just to be sure. And Caroline, a seven-year-old child who loves and respects her father, listens. When they get to the bedroom, Jean-Claude tells his daughter to lie face down in her bed. And then he shoots her in the heart with a 22 caliber rifle. He then does the same to his five-year-old son. By the time Jean-Claude finishes killing his entire immediate family, there's still plenty of daylight left. So he buys a couple of newspapers, then changes into some clothes that he can get dirty, like it's any other day and he's about to do some gardening. Of course, that's not what he has planned. He arrives at his parents' house sometime after noon and parks his car in front of their statue of the Virgin Mary. He doesn't bring mineral water this time, but he does bring an old rifle his parents bought him for his 16th birthday. He says he's returning it for some reason. Inside, Jean-Claude and his parents sit down to lunch. And after everyone's had their fill, Jean-Claude offers to help fix an air vent that's been acting up in his childhood bedroom. On the way upstairs, his father surely recognizes the gun in his son's hands, but he almost certainly doesn't notice the silencer. So when Jean-Claude's father bends down to examine the vent and Jean-Claude shoots him twice in the back, it's a quick death, and Jean-Claude's mother likely doesn't hear. Jean-Claude covers his father's body with his childhood comforter, and he heads back downstairs. After tucking himself in the corner of the sitting room, Jean-Claude calls out to his mother. He's hiding because he doesn't want to witness the fear in her eyes before he kills her. He wants to shoot her in the back like his father. But something goes wrong. She either turns around unexpectedly or enters the room from a direction Jean-Claude doesn't expect. She sees Jean-Claude standing there with the gun she gave him all those years ago, and she watches as her son pulls the trigger. The impact of the blast causes her dentures to fly from her mouth, but Jean-Claude puts them back before covering her body with a bedspread for decency. He then kills his parents' dog just for good measure. After cleaning the gun, he places it on his father's rack, somewhere it looks like it belongs, changes into a clean suit, and heads to Paris. After spending roughly 12 hours in the city of love, he returns home around sunrise the following morning. His kids' drawings are still out on the table, the Christmas tree is still clinging to life, and the bodies are exactly where he left them. From here, it's unclear how he fills his day, but we know he checks his answering machine, takes a nap, moves his car so that nobody thinks he's home, and watches some television. Between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., he makes 10 different phone calls to the same person, one of which connects. Then, sometime after midnight, he douses his house, children, and wife in gasoline and changes into pajamas. Around 4 a.m., as the street sweepers make their usual neighborhood rounds, he sets fire throughout the house, 
goes into his bedroom, opens a window, and swallows a fistful of expired barbiturates to end his life. When firefighters arrive, emergency responders transport Jean-Claude Ramon to the hospital. Nobody's sure whether he's going to live, but everyone prays that he does. Poor Jean-Claude, they say. How could such a terrible tragedy befall such a wholesome, loving family? Of course, at this point, they're only seeing a fire and watching tiny gray body bags be carried away on gurneys. But even when more details come to light, nobody believes that Jean-Claude could be capable of such heinous crimes, especially his best friends. Like Luc Ladmiral, who once named Jean-Claude godfather to his daughter, Sophie, who, remember, slept over at the Romans' house days earlier. It didn't make sense. A world-renowned doctor and one of the nicest people around doesn't just suddenly murder everyone he ever loved. But everyone would come to find out that they were wrong on two accounts. First, he didn't murder everyone he ever loved. He tried to, but failed on one account. And second... Jean-Claude wasn't the man he pretended to be. And all of this bloodshed and carnage started with one simple lie. Coming up, Jean-Claude's pathological origins. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Let's get back to the story. Growing up, Jean-Claude Roman's not what you would call someone people want to be around. I mean, he's an above-average student, but if you asked a classmate or teacher to describe him, they'd probably say he's nice. Nice being a substitute for bland and uninteresting. He's not unwanted, per se. Like, people sometimes invite him places, but when they do, they tend to forget he's in the room, even despite his tendency to hover. To compensate for his social shortcomings, Jean-Claude apparently invents an imaginary girlfriend in boarding school named Claude. I'll let that sink in for a second. Now, as far as lies go, this one's pretty harmless and honestly kind of funny. But it's worth mentioning because it starts a trend. Jean-Claude's okay sacrificing the truth for social capital. By the fall of 1974, Jean-Claude enrolls as a medical student in Lyon, France. At 20, feeling invisible isn't new, but it becomes problematic when he starts falling for a fellow student, Florence. Florence is smart, kind, beautiful, and best of all, real. Not to mention, Jean-Claude already kinda knows her pretty well. Because you see, they've seen each other at a bunch of family gatherings. And that's because they're distant cousins. A fact most sources seem to like skirt by, but I think it's definitely worth mentioning. Anyway, Florence isn't initially keen on her awkward cousin. So in an effort to woo her, Jean-Claude ingratiates himself to one of her friends, this popular kid named Luc Ladmiral. In short, Luc's everything Jean-Claude's not. Good-looking, charming, and fun to be around. But he's not the brightest bulb, so Jean-Claude starts lending him notes, helping him study, and stroking his ego. 
This goes on until one day Luke's like, you know what? That Jean-Claude's a really solid guy. And it works. Jean-Claude becomes part of the group and he starts dating Florence in their second year of school. Now, Jean-Claude couldn't be more thrilled, but the excitement's pretty short-lived. After a few months, Jean-Claude tells Florence he loves her and they have sex for the first time. And almost immediately after, she breaks things off with him. Now, Florence uses focusing on her studies as an excuse, but this was likely the first time Jean-Claude slept with anyone. So needless to say, he takes the breakup incredibly personally. He retreats even further into himself, and when second-year medical exams roll around, he just doesn't show up. Then, things start to get weird. Weeks later, Jean-Claude goes to this club with Luke and some other friends. Florence is home for the summer already, so he feels safe to socialize. At some point during the night, Jean-Claude turns to the group and is like, I'm going to go get some cigarettes from my car. I'll be right back. But what should have taken a few minutes ends up taking forever. Now, his friends kind of notice his absence. Like for the next few hours, somebody will periodically be like, anybody seen Jean-Claude? But they really notice when Jean-Claude finally returns, covered in blood. His shirt's also torn, and he has bruises and scratches all over his body. Obviously, his friends are like, what the F happened to you? And this is what he tells them. He says, as he went to get his cigarettes, a group of strangers attacked him out of nowhere. They took his car keys at gunpoint, locked him in the trunk of his car, and drove away. After about 30 miles of driving, they pulled over, tossed him out, beat the crap out of him, and left him on the side of the road. Now, this story is so unbelievable that nobody questions its authenticity because the alternative is even more inconceivable, that Jean-Claude staged the whole scene, ripped his shirt, scratched himself, and covered himself in blood from God knows where, all to fulfill some twisted need for attention. But that's what happened. He made the whole thing up. After the rest of the summer passes by without much incident, the bizarre attack becomes a distant memory, one of those remember-when moments that they all laugh about later. Come September, everyone refocuses their energy on their studies, except for the person who needs to most, Jean-Claude. Remember when he missed that final exam in the spring? Well, when the scheduled makeup test happens, Jean-Claude's MIA again. And this second no-show renders him completely ineligible to continue his studies. Now, this would be one thing if Jean-Claude was just honest. But too embarrassed to admit failure or express an ounce of vulnerability, he tells his family and friends that he passes the exam with flying colors. This includes his parents who are paying for his education and his apartment while he's in school. And this, this is what marks the beginning of the end, a test. After lying about passing the exam, Jean-Claude starts acting reclusive and out of sorts. He disappears from campus, holds himself up in his apartment, and barely goes outside. He refuses most visitors, and when people deliver packages, he pretends not to be home. Meanwhile, he's mostly just lying in bed, living on canned food and gaining weight. Of course, his friends assume that he's still hurt over Florence, and that's definitely part of it, but they obviously don't know the full story. After a few months, Luke goes to check on Jean-Claude, prepared to deliver a rousing speech to uplift his friend's spirits. 
But Luke's efforts are side-railed when Jean-Claude drops a bomb. I have cancer, he says. Lymphoma. Now, this is a particularly disgusting lie. But unfortunately, it's effective. Lymphoma attacks the immune system on a cellular level. So Jean-Claude wouldn't necessarily be showing outwardly physical symptoms. It's also deadly, but not too deadly, especially if caught early enough, and especially if it goes into remission, which is, of course, what Jean-Claude says happens next. In an instant, Jean-Claude rewrites his narrative. He cashes in his fake cancer check and goes from some guy wallowing in the corner to a survivor whose cells are like tiny ticking time bombs. And Florence goes from reportedly telling her friends how much Jean-Claude's flappy body disgusts her to getting back together with him. In the blink of an eye, everything goes back to normal. And Jean-Claude attends classes like nothing happened. Like he actually passed his exam. And nobody questions him, not even his teachers. See, his lies are propped up by a loophole in the university system. He can't officially advance without repeating his second year, but he can re-register as a second year, get his student ID card, and trick all of his friends and family into thinking that he's taking all the appropriate tests and getting graded for his work. So he does exactly that for more than a decade. Seriously, he re-registers as a second-year student for the next 12 years. He actually attends all the classes, but gets credit for none of it. Now, medical school takes at least nine years in France, if not considerably longer. So the timeline is not a red flag to anyone around him. And before his 12 years are up, Florence and Jean-Claude get married and have their first kid, Caroline. A year after Jean-Claude pretends to graduate, they have their second, Antoine. Out of school and starting a family, life starts to get a little dicey for Jean-Claude. He takes the medical boards and actually passes, so sitting through all those lectures wasn't all for naught, but without a degree, he can't apply for any positions. If he does, his prospective employer will surely find out he's a fraud and his house of cards will come crashing down. So what does he do? He invents a job. And not just any job, a job at the World Health Organization. Now, convincing everyone in your life you work for the United Nations most specialized medical agency takes some absurd levels of deceit. And Jean-Claude manages to do this for six years years. Here's how. First, he carefully crafts an image of someone who needs to compartmentalize his personal and professional lives. He doesn't give out his work number to anyone, not even his wife. He makes Florence send a number to his pager, one to nine, depending on how urgently she needs to talk to him. Then he decides whether to call her back from his personal phone. On his kids' birthdays, he brings them gifts and says they're from his bosses at WHO. Florence will write them thank you cards, but Jean-Claude always offers to hand deliver the messages like the good husband he is. When family or friends visit Geneva, he'll point to a window on a second floor in the real WHO building and say, that's my office. But of course, nobody can ever go up. And for the most part, everyone's totally fine with it. They figure his work's pretty classified. A bit of red tape and discretion just comes with the territory. 
When work comes up at dinner parties or in conversation, Jean-Claude always pivots to shine the light on someone else. As a result, he's not only considered the most prolific person in the room at any given time, but he's also the most humble. And to really sell the part, Jean-Claude joins actual charitable organizations like the SPCA, Greenpeace, and Handicap International. Every morning, he drives to, or at least towards, the WHO offices. Using a visitor's badge, he'll typically do a quick walkabout on the first floor, use the restroom, say hi to the security guards, grab some WHO pamphlets to artificially leave around his house and car. He even uses WHO's bank, post office, and travel agency. How? I have no freaking idea. After showing his face, he then spends his day doing whatever he wants, which typically amounts to not much. Sit at a coffee shop or a rest stop, walk through the woods, grab a sandwich. He's essentially on a never-ending vacation, especially when traveling for work. And this happens a lot. Florence thinks he's meeting with world leaders and dignitaries, but he's really renting a cheap hotel room near the local airport, watching TV and lounging around for days at a time. He'll return with trinkets he purchased from the airport for the kids and stories he invented after studying guidebooks for the place he said he went. And clearly he's convincing. But if there's ever a rare moment when he's acting strange, he always has this get-out-of-free-cancer card that other people will play for him. The stakes are always high. Everyone believes Jean-Claude's researching global medicine to save his life, in addition to millions more. If he's acting a little weird, it's totally understandable. The least Florence can do is ask him, can I get you anything? Do you need to lie down when he gets home? And that's what she does. Okay, by this point, you're probably asking, how can Jean-Claude afford his lifestyle? And well, there's a reason people say money is the root of all evil. Back in med school, Jean-Claude's loving, trusting parents give him access to their bank account so he can focus on his studies. After school, he sells the apartment they bought him for about 300,000 francs and pockets the cash. Now that's Good money, over 100,000 U.S. dollars today. But it's finite. So as Jean-Claude starts a family while he's about to enter financial freefall, he runs back to his parents and is like, hey, by the way, as an international civil servant now, I have exclusive access to some lucrative opportunities. If you want, I can set you up with a Swiss bank account for tax reasons and invest your money for you. We're talking return rates up to 18%, so your money will make money, a.k.a. the dream. And sure, it sounds a little shady, even illegal, because it is. But it's also their son, and it literally couldn't be any easier. He already has access to their account, so they just need to say yes, which they do. And for the next few years, they happily watch their life savings drain out of their bank while publicly bragging about their son being their financier. And this starts a waterfall effect. Soon, Jean-Claude's uncle practically begs him to manage his money, and Florence's parents hand their son-in-law close to half a million francs of their hard-earned cash to work his alleged magic. 
Now, this scheme is about as shameless and unethical as it gets, but the scams get worse. This one time, Jean-Claude sells a relative who's dying of actual cancer, a so-called experimental medication for 15,000 francs a pop. Four sugar pills later, Jean-Claude's 60,000 francs richer, the relative dies, and Jean-Claude's praised for trying his best. Theoretically, all this cash is buying Jean-Claude time to come up with a more sustainable plan. But in reality, it's just delaying the inevitable. I mean, someone's eventually going to ask for their money back and the whole thing will collapse, right? Well? In 1988, Florence's father, Pierre, wants to buy a new Mercedes. He's retired now. His children are independent. He deserves it. So Pierre asks Jean-Claude to dip into his Swiss savings, which at this point doesn't really exist. Naturally, Jean-Claude starts sweating, but he plays it cool, like, of course, no problem, right away. But the transaction never actually happens because, wouldn't you know, when Jean-Claude visits his father-in-law a few weeks later and the two of them are alone, Pierre accidentally falls down the stairs. By the time emergency responders arrive at the house, he's already dead. Jean-Claude appears so genuinely distraught over Pierre's sudden and untimely death that everyone ends up consoling him, apologizing that he had to be there when it happened. By the time the funeral planning starts, nobody even remembers the Mercedes. To this day, Jean-Claude swears his father-in-law's death was an accident and not murder. But to that, I'd say if you believe anything that comes out of his mouth at this point, you are not paying attention. Convenient accident or convenient murder, Pierre's death protects Jean-Claude from exposure and also becomes his biggest windfall yet. Florence's mother, now an empty nester and a widow, doesn't want a big home filled with memories of a happier past. So she sells it for 1.3 million francs and hands the lump sum to Jean-Claude to invest. This catapults the Romans into a world previously unavailable to them. They move to a beautiful farmhouse in the French countryside. Their friends had always wondered why they'd live so humbly given Jean-Claude's work, even Florence at times. But after the move, everyone forgets their meager beginnings. Luke even stops making jokes about how Jean-Claude must have been spending all his money on expensive mistresses when he absolutely wasn't. But, to be fair, he was about to. Coming up, a murder gone wrong and Jean-Claude's trial. Let's get back to the story. Shortly after the Romans move, Corinne Hortin starts going through a divorce. Corinne's a psychologist, beautiful and a bit of a flirt, the type of Parisian woman who's used to getting flowers. So she doesn't think much of it when a bouquet arrives with an invitation to dinner from Jean-Claude. He's in her city, Paris, for a work conference, and he'd love to catch up. Now, Jean-Claude and Corinne were previously couple friends, as in they hung out in large groups with other couples. But after Corinne's divorce, most of her friends chose her husband. So she's grateful for the offer. She thinks the dinner is some kind of olive branch and, to be clear, not a date. At least she hopes so. She knows Jean-Claude's still married, 
The first dinner is exactly what she wants it to be. Friendly, innocent, expensive. But after Jean-Claude confesses his love for Corrine during the second dinner, Corrine doesn't react well. In addition to Jean-Claude being married, Corrine has zero interest in him physically or as anything other than a friend. So she tells him she's disgusted and disappointed, and that's the end of it. Or rather, it should be the end of it. But later that night, Jean-Claude calls Corrine and apologizes for his betrayal of her trust. She's basically like, great, thanks, bye. Until he offers her a 19,000 franc gold and emerald ring to make up for it. And she accepts the ring and the apology. Afterward, their meetups and dinners continue on a similarly bizarre fashion. Jean-Claude later compares their relationship to the Beauty and the Beast. He's the monster at the end of the table who's infatuated with her, the ingenue. But their love is far from a fairy tale. It's mostly unrequited. That said, Corinne absolutely adores Jean-Claude's status. She really wants to meet his world leader friends. But for some reason, something always seems to come up to prevent that from happening. To keep Corinne coming back for more, Jean-Claude spends money like it's going out of style. He buys a Range Rover, a BMW, luxury hotel rooms, five-star dinners, extravagant presents, the whole nine yards. But here's the wildest part. At some point, Corinne falls for Jean-Claude's Swiss bank account scheme. So on some level, she's essentially buying herself the presents. Now, their affair only ever turns physical once, maybe twice. But almost immediately after they have sex, Corinne tells Jean-Claude she's ending things. She says, one, they should just be friends. And two, he's, quote, too sad. Now, after what happened with Florence, this breakup is particularly triggering. And just like in med school, Jean-Claude spirals into an emotional breakdown. To justify his sudden, sad, reclusive behavior, he starts telling people, including Corinne, his cancer is back. Without a job, without a mistress anymore, and running out of money, Jean-Claude is backed into a corner, sure that his life will come crashing down any second. If you believe his version of the story, over the next few months, Jean-Claude considers and even attempts suicide. When he doesn't succeed in killing himself, he kills his wife, kids, parents, and their dog. He covers all their bodies in cloth so he doesn't have to look at them, changes into a fresh suit, and travels to Paris, where he meets Corinne. Corinne agrees to the meeting because Jean-Claude promises to introduce her to one of his dignitary friends. That, and she needs her money back. Jean-Claude picks her up in his car, takes her away from her daughters, and then drives to the middle of the woods somewhere and sprays her with tear gas. As she's struggling, she feels electric shocks from the stun gun Jean-Claude apparently plans on using on her. Corinne begs him to consider her daughters and his grip softens just enough for her to slip away. He then has the audacity to tell her to calm down. Seriously, I'm not making this up. Corinne's like, what is happening. She is scared to death without even knowing Jean-Claude has killed at least five other people already. She is in the woods. She has no idea where she is. She wants to get back to her daughters and Jean-Claude's the one with the car. 
Then she sees a cable lying in the leaves on the ground, which Jean-Claude planned on using for God knows what reason, but Corinne doesn't want to find out. Believe it or not, after putting the cable back in the car, Jean-Claude drives Corinne back home while desperately trying to convince her to keep quiet about him trying to murder her. After dropping her off, Jean-Claude calls her from a payphone five minutes later and says, Promise me not to believe it was premeditated. If I wanted to kill you, I'd have done it in your apartment. And I'd have killed your girls, too. And well, we all know what happens next. Jean-Claude returns to his family's farmhouse for the finale. In addition to napping and watching TV, he writes a note on the back of an envelope confessing to some of his crimes. I guess now that his body counts up to five, he's in the mood to tell the truth. He also makes those 10 different phone calls to the same person, only one of which connects. When he hears Corrine's voice on the other end, he says he's sorry again. And she tells him, because he's so sick from cancer, she won't tell the police, so long as he returns her money. Jean-Claude is like, listen, I'll be at the bank first thing in the morning. But a few hours later, once he knows the street sweepers are making their early morning rounds, he sets fire to the farmhouse, goes into his bedroom, opens a window, and swallows enough expired barbiturates to end his life. Days later, when Jean-Claude wakes up from his coma, one of the first things he does is lie. After police accuse him of murdering his parents, he denies all culpability. He acts outraged, saying, you don't kill your father and mother. It's one of God's commandments. But his sudden sense of piety falls on deaf ears, and he eventually realizes it's the end of the road. He admits to killing everyone except Pierre. Now, if I can offer some advice, don't spend time trying to make sense of why Jean-Claude did anything he did. Trust me, it's an unproductive rabbit hole. I think sometimes true evil just operates by its own set of rules, unbothered by logic. When Jean-Claude goes to trial in June 1996, the unfathomable nature of his crimes makes international headlines. But the defense tells a story of a regular guy hopelessly trapped by circumstance who just so happened to spiral into a passionate frenzy, which regrettably ended in tragedy. And to make their case, they play up the fact that Jean-Claude had been suicidal and thus not in his right mind enough for the murders to be premeditated. But okay, listen. I'm neither judge nor jury, but I do have a few questions. Forget the fact that he takes expired barbiturates, even though he bought fresh ones days earlier. Forget the fact that he waits till 4 a.m. when the street cleaners drive by to set the fire. Forget the fact that he opened the window to make his rescue easier. Forget that he literally begged one of his victims not to consider his actions premeditated. And just answer me this. After 12 years of medical lectures, wouldn't Jean-Claude know how to effectively and efficiently end his life if he really wanted to die that bad? Or did he think that even after everything, he deserved a second chance at life? 
He staged his suicide to continue calling pity so that maybe he wouldn't be considered a complete and total narcissistic monster for the rest of his life. Just like the day he stumbled into that nightclub, scratched and bloody, he could say, look, I'm a victim too, despite all the cuts being self-inflicted. I don't know the answer, but Jean-Claude Roman received not one, but two second chances. First when he lived, and then again in April 2019, when an appeals court granted him parole. Officially, his release was the result of Jean-Claude's good behavior during his stay and the belief that he no longer posed a threat to society. But France has a notoriously overcrowded prison system. It certainly didn't hurt that his leaving made space for another convict coming. Ultimately, the court ordered Jean-Claude spend two years in a monastery under electronic surveillance. Those two years are now up, and Jean-Claude remains free to do as he pleases. According to author Emmanuel Carrère, who corresponded with Jean-Claude in prison, he apparently found religion in jail. So maybe he's studying the Bible right now, or saying a prayer, or asking God to forgive his sins. But he could be doing anything, even listening to this podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another story. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from ParCast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of International Infamy was written by Connor Sampson with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Drew Cole, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. 